media ministry of Cornerstone Church. You can listen to this and other messages on our website at www.corner-stone.org or by subscribing to our podcast. As you're seated this morning, open your Bibles to Revelation 22. We've been in the last two chapters of Revelation for uh, the last two chapters of the Bible for uh, several weeks now. A couple weeks ago, I asked uh, a question. How many of you kind of cheat sometimes when you're reading a novel or you're reading uh, some kind of report? And you, you kind of already want to know, without reading the rest of the book, how the story ends. And then many of you raise your hand and say, yeah, I've che- cheated before and kind of found out who'd done it and all those kind of things. Maybe a mystery book or whatever it might be. Uh, Walt Disney had this great, great uh, ability to kind of tell stories. And you kind of already knew how the story was going to end. I mean, doesn't like every time the princess and the prince kind of get together or, you know, almost every story ends with this kind of typical Disney ending. And yet he was a master craftsman of kind of bringing conflict and all the other things that that you would find in all those Disney stories. And you would think that everything's going to fall apart. And then all of a sudden it all comes back together. There's something about knowing the end of the story that can affect you even for the day that we live. Somehow knowing how it all turns out brings a comfort, a hope, an encouragement to our lives. In fact, I believe that there's three different things that I could identify that knowing the end of the story kind of helps. One is it keeps the current challenges in perspective. When you think about the end of the story, that is the end of all times as displayed by the Bible, Even if you're in the midst of deep, deep concern and crisis in your life right now, you know how the story ends. And all of a sudden it gives you some hope, some encouragement. And another thing that we find is that it prepares ourselves for what lies ahead. The Bible tells us that as Christians we are to be heavenly minded. And while we're still living here very much on earth and having to deal with all the situations on earth, that we are to set our minds and our focus on heaven And that we are very much to set our minds on those things that are eternal. If I've said it once over the last 40 years, I've said it many, maybe hundreds of times, that here's our perspective, guys. We think about today, maybe the next couple hours, maybe next week, maybe a month. And yet what the Word of God and what the very Spirit of God wants us to do is He's continually stretching our arms out, our mindset out, so that we think eternally. The minute crisis comes, all of a sudden we're back here. How are we going to pay the bills? What about this? What about a child that's rebellious? What about trouble in my marriage? And so we constantly kind of get this focus back on the temporary and the the now. That's normal. That's natural. And yet God invites us into the supernatural. To look with eyes and faith to the promises of what God has in store for us. And so while you and I have this nature that kind of wants to look this way, a week, a month, God says, look eternally. And knowing the end of the story helps us to do that. The third thing is it helps us to warn others of what lies ahead. Now that seems kind of negative, but I think it's actually, I, I want to point that as very much as a positive. For some reason, if you knew that some doom was coming or some the unfortunate was happening down the road, just in your normal life, you would probably be concerned enough to tell your friend, your family member, a loved one, hey, here's what's coming. I I don't want you to trip over this. 
And so there's a part of knowing the future, God's eternal future, that helps us to, to go out there and, and actually warn others and invite others to be part of this truth. Truth is, we actually see all three of those in this last passage of the Bible. God tells us how everything ends. And while there's many details, as we discovered the last seven, eight weeks, that we're still curious about and that are left untold, all the major points are covered. And enough to give us hope in a day of challenge. Enough for us to think heavenly-minded and point ourselves eternally and to warn others. Simple truth is every major religion, not just Christianity though, has some version of their end, how the story ends. Uh, some people think that there is no God and that we're just here for existence. And when we take our last breath, it literally is that. It's just our last breath. And pretty much at that point, we just die. And there's no existence beyond that. That's one belief. If you go to other religions, they will tell you that this happens. Sometimes there's a version of heaven. Sometimes there's a multiple uh, version of many heavens. Uh, some have a version of separation from uh, good and whether we would call that a hell, whether we'd call that some place of punishment and, and eternal lake of fire, all these kind of dis- different descriptions. Every world religion that I know of has some version of how the story ends. To put it a little bit more theologically, they have an eternal view, an eternal belief. This morning we're going to look back, and, and as we finish out in these last verses, what is the biblical view of how the story ends? What is eternity? How does it come about? Now, again, we're not going to answer every question that we would have. We would have a multitude of questions, but we're going to cover the basics this morning as we look at this last part of the, the, uh, the passage here. I just want you to understand that Christianity is not distinct with an eternal view. A lot of people have it. And what it's ultimately going to come down to is what view do you believe? Where are you going to place your faith and your trust? Our students and, and a lot of the adults that went out to the mission trip the last two years, so we would travel to Utah, and we would talk with a lot of the LDS and the Mormon people there, and uh, we came to find out that, you know, very much a little bit more uh, intricacy of some of their eternal view. They do believe in heaven. In fact, they believe in three heavens. And you kind of work your way up. The better you've been here, the, the more, the higher you get. And, you know, almost everybody goes to the first heaven. You have to really be bad. In fact, you almost have to be an apostate of the church to go to the outer darkness, what they believe would be like a hell. And, but almost everybody, even if you really don't believe, as long as you kind of just don't go against the church, they believe that you get into heaven number one. And then there are steps to get to heaven two and heaven three. And I'm sure if you have Mormon friends and LDS family, you're saying, Bobby, you kind of messed that up. I'm giving you a very general view of how I understand that. Folks, we are not unique as Christians. Say we believe that there's an eternal life that's going to be lived out there. Every world religion does. And what they also believe is kind of the mode of getting there. See, one of life's question is, is there a God? If there is a God, is he a good God or a bad God? If he's a good God, how do I appease this God? How do I make sure that the one who made me, that I end up on the good side of that God? I'm not trying to be really theological with those words, but those are the questions that we would ask. That's the basic questions. Why are we here? How did we get here? 
And where are we going? We've wrestled with that as humanity since the very beginning of time. And that's why we have a multitude of answers. The Bible answers that question. From a biblical point of view, the Bible is very complete. The Bible is very complete in knowing that our sufficiency is not in ourselves, but it's in the work of Jesus Christ. That the way that we can appease a God is not in the works that we would do, but that appeasing, that work, that satisfaction of our need came when Christ died on the cross. And so as we put our faith and our trust in God's answer, that appeasement happens. We're justified, to use a theological term. All these things are things that we grapple with. All these things are not distinct to Christianity. What is distinct to Christianity is that it is the one that looks beyond our own self and looks to someone else. For the most part, most of the world religions are going to put a lot of emphasis on how good you are. And that's why it's so confusing to you and I, and it's so challenging at times to say, well, you know, Farmer Ted, my famous Farmer Ted, he was a good guy. And I promise you, on a world standard, on a human standard, there's a lot of Farmer Ted's out there that are better than a lot of Christians, a lot of people that are sit in church every single week. But it's not about us. It's not about how good we are. The Bible never teaches that there's three levels of heaven. You kind of get in this one just kind of almost automatically. And then if you're really good and you do this, you get into this heaven. Or if you're really good and you do all these things for the church, then you get into this third heaven. We never find that. Every religion is going to have a view. And the question ultimately is going to come down to this, folks. What view, what belief will you place your faith in? And do you realize if there's 150 people, there could be 150 answers to that? It's amazing how when we entertain the thought of eternity, about how it all works out in the end, that we have our own versions. Even within the church, I've met many Christians that have an unbiblical view (laughs) of eternity. I've met Christians that sincerely thought, well, he was such a nice person. God has to do something here. He has to do that. God doesn't have to do anything. The fact that he would give us his only son to die for us and for our sins, that is amazing. That is amazing that God would so love the world that he gave his only begotten son, that whoever believes in him shall not perish, but have everlasting That's the biblical view, guys. And we see that this morning. Revelation 22, verse 12 and 13. Behold, I am coming soon, bringing my recompense with me to repay each one for what he has done. I am the Alpha and the Omega, the first and the last, the beginning and the end. These verses resound with God's authority. He establishes his authority as if he had to establish his authority. He is holy God, guys. And yet he gives us this picture of the end because he wants us to know everything that we can, everything within our capacity of knowing and entertaining in these little brains that we have, that he is holy, 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 Lord God Almighty. 
And we see it here. I'm coming soon. He's bringing, he has the authority to judge. That's what he says. I bring recompense with me to pay for each one what he's done. Very much we can start thinking of a works mentality right there. And yet, that's where we have to take that verse along with the rest of the Bible and say, okay, what he means by that is have we placed our faith in the one that did the work for us? A lot of people go, well, I just don't know. I don't know that God's really going to judge everybody. He said he's going to judge us, folks. We're either going to be in Christ or we're not going to be in Christ. Well, I, mean, I know other religions. Yeah, that's other religions. What are we talking about this morning? What is the biblical worldview? I mean, the bur- biblical view, I'm sorry, biblical view of, the, of how the story ends. <laughs> that God in his authority has the authority to judge. And look what he says. And, and judgment ends in two distinct groups. Look at verses 14 and 15. Blessed are those who wash their robes so that they may have the right to the tree of life and that they may enter the city by the gates. He's talking about Christians there. We're not doing... We don't have white robes because we found out where the bleach was, folks. We have white robes because we have been adorned by the work of Christ if you've placed your faith and your trust in what Jesus has done. But now look what it says in verse 15. Outside are the dogs, the sorcerers, and the sexually immoral, and murderers and idolaters... And everyone who loves to practice falsehood. We, we said before when we read several other points of this text in chapter 21 and 22 that sometimes when we get this list, we are quick in our human thinking, okay, I haven't done that, I haven't done that. Oh my goodness, maybe I did do that. Folks, what he's not doing here is not an inclusive list. He's not trying to say, here's the, the separating points. What he's saying, those who are still in their sin and those who have the white robes because they've been delivered from their sin. Growing up, I've joked with you before, my pastor only knew when I was real young in an independent Baptist church, three sermons, hell, fire, and damnation. Finally went to this other church in my middle school years and high school years, and I had a preacher that was actually preaching from the word, an expository preacher. And all of a sudden, I did find out that those things do exist. But grace and love, I began to see the full story of the redemptive work of Christ. And that was hope, because up to that point, guys, I lived most of my life in fear of God, not understanding the love that God had shown me. I will be forever grateful for that pastor for five or six years just taught me the word and the truth and the life that comes through Jesus Christ. But we don't shy away from this. A lot of people say, well, I don't like those verses. And who is God to say that these people are saved and these people aren't? He's God. Folks, he's God. This isn't Bobby. This isn't a pastor saying this. This is caustic to a lot of people. This angers many, many people. This brings great disagreement with a lot of people. And I don't like that. I don't like to be 
the person who's bringing agitation to somebody else's life. At the same time, folks, I'm never going to water down what God has said. He makes it, he says there's two groups here. There's a group that have the right to the tree of life that they may enter into the city. They're inside. And there's another group that he characterizes by that first word in verse 15. They're outside. Eternity will be with God or apart from God. The other details we don't know. Lake of fire, all those things, is that symbolic? Is it literal? I, I don't know. But, it, but here's what I do know. By the word of God. That every one of us will spend eternity with God or apart from God. There's no middle ground. There's no safety place. There's not another place to go think about it for a while. Folks, I'm not trying to be silly here. I'm trying to be as biblical as I can. Because this is how the story ends according to God. Biblical Christianity preaches a real heaven and a real hell. Again, this is going to be offensive to some. This will anger some. But it's what the Bible teaches. And to change it in any capacity... Well, look at verse 18 and 19. In this context, we could use these verses to, to talk about, okay, we don't change the Bible. We don't add to the Bible. We don't take away from the Bible. That's covered here. Certainly this principle would be in place here, but it also could be found in other places, uh, what Jesus said back in the Gospels. But here when we look at the context of this, he's talking about you know this eventual heaven and this eventual hell, this eternal state. This division between those who are inside and with God, those that are outside and away from God and apart from God. And then without apology, what does he do? He gives a warning. Verse 18. I warn everyone who hears the words of this prophecy, of this book, if anyone adds to them, God will add to him plagues described in this book. And if anyone takes away from the words of this book and this prophecy, God will take away his share of the tree of life and the holy city, which are described in this book. I could probably preach for two months on kind of those two verses. What does that mean? So let's, let's kind of sum it up. Remember our BB size brains? Let's just sum it up. God has said what he said. He doesn't apologize for it. And he warns us. He lovingly warns us not to adjust this in any way. Not to water it down, not to amplify it, but just to preach the word. And that warning applies to those who, you know, think uh, differently. You know, we've said that every religion, every cult, every belief that's out there among men, that they have a different, you know, a, a version of the end times. If it's different from this one, According to God and God's word, they said that there's penalty for that, that they're wrong, they're in error. And there's a warning in there for us too. Out of our genuine trying to be nice, sometimes I think we apologize for those who are good people and yet never trusted Christ. I mean, if that's my daddy, if that's my mama, if that's my sister or brother, if that's my friend, if it's my son or daughter, I want that to be true. God, we just kind of look upon him. 
That's not what the Word of God says, guys. Well, that's just mean spirit. No, guys, it's not. It's loving. Mean spirited is not telling you, and then you get there and you find out, hey, this was the rules. It's loving to say, I've come that you might have life and have it to the full, abundantly and eternal. God tells us how the story ends. And so it prepares our heart for what's coming. Do you have to believe this? No. Do everybody in the whole world, do they, is this what all religions believe? No, but it is what biblical Christianity is. And so if you believe this to be the word of God, if you believe this to be truly how the story ends according to God, the God of the Bible, this is your only option. He doesn't give an option for purgatory. He doesn't give an option for praying saints, you know, or or praying uh, your ancestors out of uh, hell later on in life. This is it. Quick question. How many of you would be upset if you wrote an important part, a paper maybe for work or something? You're going to turn it into whoever your authority is. You gave it to somebody and and they adjusted it. And you're going, wait, 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 wait. I gave you this. You were supposed to give it to the CEO, the president, the whatever it is, this line of authority. They said, well, I thought it was a little harsh. So I softened it down. So you might say, well, I meant for it to be harsh. I thought it needed to be a little harsher. It was kind of just wishy-washy. Maybe you said, I kind of meant for it to be wishy-washy. And in some way, would you be offended that somebody took what you wrote and took time to write and then took it upon themselves to give another version of that? In a personal way, wouldn't that just kind of irritate you? Now, there is no way that this... That's a terrible analogy of us adjusting the word of God because we are not holy, holy, holy God, okay? But am I, do you see how personal that would be? Do you think that God has given us with great intention his word? Or do you think that he's just, you know, I'll just write some things. Hey, whatever sticks, kind of go with that. Or do you truly believe that what you hold in your hand, if you have your Bible this morning, or if you have your phone and that word of God that you see revealed in front of you, that God with great intention truly did write, ordain, blessed by the Holy Spirit, every word? I do. And I think that's why this warning to me is unfathomable for us to think that we can just kind of take away or add to. And yet we see that happening in other religions in the world. That's not to finger point to them, folks, because we do a pretty bad job in our own Christianity, in our own minds, in our own grouping as a church to, to sit there and not want to add or not to want to take away, not to want to adjust, not to want to do this. He is holy God. He has ordained his word. And his word is true. And that's what I choose to put my faith in. You will make that choice for yourself where you're place your faith. But don't fall for this one that, well, I'm not really choosing. Kind of believe a little bit of everything. No, that is your choice. 
that you didn't choose and you kind of believed a little bit of everything. For those who would say, well, I don't even believe in a God. Well, you made your choice. That's what you believe in. You believe that there's no God. We do not go through this world, folks, without making some kind of affirmation, whether it's out loud and firm or whether it's kind of this passive mode. We don't go through this life without somehow placing faith in something that we believe or placing belief in something. But I'm telling you, if you're a follower of Jesus Christ, if you truly say, okay, I believe in Christianity, biblical, historic Christianity, this is what God has said. And we are not to add to, we're not to take from. If it's harsh, then we say, man, that's harsh. We don't apologize for God. We certainly don't come up with another version that's more palatable to, to people. So the Bible ends with this clear teaching in the reality of a heaven and a hell, a clear teaching on the authority of God and the judgment to come and to take God's word as final truth. But there's one last thing that we begin to see here before we close out the entirety of the Bible. It's an invitation. In fact, it's actually two invitations. Look at verse 17. And the spirit and the bride say, come. And the one who hears say, come. And the one who is thirsty, come. Let the one who desires to take the water of life without price. There's an invitation, actually two invitations. The first one is given by who? The spirit and the bride. Who's the bride? The church. Believers. The body of Christ. Who are we to give this invitation? What does that mean? The Spirit, the Holy Spirit, and the church, the the bride. What does it mean that we're saying come? It means this, guys. That we live in anticipation. That it really is that there's an expectancy in our heart. That there really is among Christians, among those who have put their faith and trust in Christ, to say, come quickly, Lord Jesus. In desperate times, I think we make that proclamation. Have you ever done that? I mean, truly, you're just frustrated. Or, or you're, don't see a way out, you've lost all hope. And, and kind of as this desperate plea, come quickly, Lord Jesus. Well, certainly it can fit that. But that's not really the context here. It's not just frustration. One of the things that I wanted to do by this series that I thought was really important is that we wouldn't see heaven as an escape. That we see that we get God. It's not just escape from troubles. It is that. And we don't make light of that. But we make much. We get God. How many times have you heard me say that over the last eight weeks? That's heaven, guys. Because we get God and he's perfect us in every way. There is no more crying. There is no more tear. There is no more sin. There's no more requirement of faith. Uh, all of a sudden now we have been made to be in the presence of God and the glory of God to worship God forever and ever. That's biblical Christianity. You want to throw in nine holes of golf or fishing on the lake? or I mean, we just got back from a cruise. You know, hey, I just want a big, long cruise. We get God. 
Spirit and the bride say, come. The Holy Spirit and the bride of Christ are inviting with anticipation the return of Christ. Do you think that sometimes that it's possible for us that even as we are waiting for the return of Christ, that, that sometimes the return of Christ would be an interruption to the plans that we've made? I don't say that as some kind of sacred uh, good thing. But do you think that we ever get so involved in our lives that we kind of lose that anticipation? I know I do. I'll be the first one to confess. Hey, guys, I, I, I you know, I, I think of my grandchildren. I think of this. Good things. I want to see them grow up. I'd love to see them play sports and have fun. Our, our oldest, Brantley, is now playing t-ball. Or it's playing him, one or the other. But it, it's hilarious to see. Randa hit the ball the other day and ran to first base and then just kind of stood there. <laughs> it's hilarious. It's not that we don't you know, have emotions. It's not that we're not involved in those things. We are to have this earthly effect and yet we are never to lose sight that we are living in anticipation. Spirit in the bride, Come. Come, come. Does that make sense? So how do you balance that? How do you live your life well and yet live in anticipation? And I think that the only way that we can do that is to anticipate more and more the glory of God, being in the presence of God, being not just escaping the things of this world, but being with Him. And so we'll live our lives led by the Spirit of God, filled by the Spirit of God, directed by the Spirit of God, and yet we will live in anticipation. God, come quickly. Christ, come quickly. The Bible says, set your minds toward heaven. And that's what we are to do. There's a second invitation here. It's in the latter part of that verse. And let the one who is thirsty come. Let the one who desires take water of life without price. These words reflect... The Old Testament, remember we said that the Old Testament is one of the greatest lens to look through to see New Testament truths? Isaiah 55, 1. Come, everyone who thirsts, come to the waters. And he who has no money, come, buy and eat. Come, buy wine and milk without money and without price. God uses this analogy, he uses this as picture of a thirst and a hunger and that we would come, and yet we have no money. And so there's no way that we're going to be able to satisfy that hunger. We're never going to be able to satisfy that thirst. And yet we go into the store, and all of a sudden we see these things that can satisfy truly our thirst and our hunger. And yet they're free. He who has no money, let him come. How many of y'all would like to go grocery shopping next week at that store? And yet we realize this is an analogy. We realize this is a spiritual truth. That he's talking about is the thirst of our souls, the thirst of our very beings, the hunger of our very beings and our needs of our life, that there's only one place that we can come and find truly the water of life, the bread of life that satisfies. And that's Christ Jesus. And you don't pay for him. You don't earn it. It's free without price. But it does mean that we put our faith and our trust in him. Folks, this is the gospel. 
God created us in perfection, and in our own rebellion, we sinned against God. And in that sin, we were separated. If you remember, Adam and Eve, they, they were kicked out of the garden. All of a sudden, they, they had shame in their life. And yet there was, in the very beginning in Genesis, we see this promise of the gospel, that one day there would be one that would come. The Jewish people waited generation after generation after generation for this Messiah to come, for this Savior to come. And then Christ did. At the perfect time, the Bible says. Not a second too early, not a second too late, but at the perfect time of all of human history, God brought forth his son, born of a virgin, led a perfect life, had a ministry for about three years, was sentenced to death on a rugged cross, not because of his own sin, but to pay for our sins, was buried in a tomb, and rose again on the third day to bring to you and I victory over sin, death, and the grave. How does the story end for somebody who says, I try to be good, but I'll never be good enough. I tried to love God, but I also kind of like these other things. If it comes to earning, I can't earn. But if God is offering that for a free gift, a price that's already been paid, then I can have my thirst and my hunger satisfied Without money, tell me more. As we place our faith and our trust in Jesus Christ, these promises become ours. In one way, that's the simplicity of the gospel. I told you at the beginning, it's one version. It's the only biblical version it's the only version of Christian, historic Christianity that we see revealed in the Bible. But there's all kinds of, I mean, if you want to believe that you can die and if you didn't do enough, you're going to come back as a caterpillar or something. And I'm not trying to be funny with that. I, I truly am not. We can believe whatever we want to believe, guys. But if you believe that there truly is holy God, one God, And that there is one way to come to know and live eternally with this God. It's through his gift of the Son, Jesus Christ. This is the only way. By the declaration of Christ himself, I am the way, the truth, and the life. No one comes to the Father except through me. There's not three different ways. There's not a slight adjustment to left or right. It's just this confession of belief. Repentance of sin. God, I'm a sinner, and yet you provided for me a Savior. And I put my whole trust in Jesus Christ as the sufficient one who has paid the price so that I might know you and that I might live with you forever and ever and ever. There will never be a grander invitation, dear friend. I know how the story ends. And it ends with an invitation for those who are hungry and those who are thirsty to find total satisfaction in a life with God. Revelation 22, 20, 21. 
He who testifies these things says, Surely I am coming soon. Amen. Come, Lord Jesus. The grace of our Lord Jesus be with all. Amen. Father, we love you and we thank you. And Father, our minds are filled with all kinds of different ways that one could play out the end of the story. And yet, Father, you have written very specifically all that we need to know, Father. You've made one provision in Christ. Not our works, not our abilities, not being a member of a church, not getting wet in a baptismal tank, Father. All those things are things that we do to show that Christ is the center of our life. And and yet, Father, none of those things will save us. The only thing that will save us, Father, is when you place that trust and that faith, Father, in our hearts, Open our eyes to our sins so that we might see that you have provided for us a Savior. And Father, I pray that as we close out the series, Father, that as we think eternally, that we would remember I come quickly. And that we would join in with the Holy Spirit, Father. And that our voices would raise and say, Come, come quickly, Lord Jesus. And Father, that we would be busy telling others about this blessed hope that we have found. Father, we love you and we thank you. And we praise you. As we pray all these things in Christ's name. Amen. Thank you for listening today. We hope this message was a blessing to you. To learn more about our church or our media ministry, you can visit us online at www.corner-stone.org or find us on Facebook.